We'll hear argument now in number 90-1279, Myra Jo Collins versus the City of Harker Heights, Texas. Mr. Rosen. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, this case is here on a pleading stance as it involves the affirmance by the Fifth Circuit of a Rule 12b-6 motion to dismiss. That ruling of the Fifth Circuit is in direct conflict with one of the Eighth Circuit in the Rouge case. In the complaint, which must be taken, the allegations of which are taken is true, plaintiff alleges that the defendant's city employed her decedent, that it caused his death in violation of due process by sending him into the sewer where he succumbed, knowing that there was a high risk of death as a result of a prior incident that occurred several months before he went into the sewer and indeed before he was employed, and pursuant to a policy or custom of deliberate indifference to his safety needs and the risks to his life as evidenced by its failure to comply even with mandates of the Texas Hazard Communication Act and thereby failed to train, warn, properly equip, or supervise him in relation to the risks. The allegations are read as claiming a violation directly of the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment and also a violation of due process as a result of violations of the substantive mandates of the Texas Hazard Communication Act. And what is the violation of the Constitution claim, Mr. Rosen? The taking of his life, in essence, Your Honor, in disregard of his uh, bodily security. And uh, that is protected by what provision of the, of the Constitution? The Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment, which specifically states that life shall not be taken without due process of law. If, if they'd given him some sort of a hearing before they sent him into this place, would that have solved the due process problem? The only hearing that would have solved the due process problem would have been training, warning, and supervision, not a hearing, shall you go down in and succumb. Um, if one wanted to analyze the case in, in procedural grounds, arguably that could stand as a hearing, but I think not. This is basically a substantive due process case. In this court, uh, in your support, In terms of his, his, have, his life having been lost or, no, or the, the physical closest, closest, closest would be, excuse me, would be uh, Harrison and, uh, and City of Canton, even though it involved not a public employee, of course, but it did involve uh, the deliberate indifference of a municipality. To and the, a failure to train. And a failure to train, or as I believe Justice O'Connor described it as, as an inaction in the face of a, a, of a known and patent... Uh, that was where the uh, woman was in the custody of the police and slumped down? Yes, Your Honor. But, but there she was in custody. Here it's a little hard to say that uh, the employees in the custody of the, um, of the city, to be sure, he, he has a supervisor who tells him where to go and what, and what to do. But he's not in the uh, kind of involuntary custody that uh, the, plaintiff, the petitioner was in Harris. That is why, Your Honor, in all of the briefing, we have taken the position that not only do you have to prove your Section 1983 claim against the municipality by meeting a standard of deliberate indifference, 
But in order to establish the violation of the due process right itself, you have to meet a standard of deliberate indifference. For example, Your Honor, in the Daniels, Davidson, and uh, Whitley cases, the court specifically reserved the question of the appropriate standard for harms to individuals who were either pretrial detainees or people whose liberty was unconstrained with respect to due process violations of the, of the type that might have been involved in those well, cases. Is there a case in this court dealing with, the, with uh, police using undue, uh, uh, undue force in making an arrest? Oh, there have been a number of such cases. Uh, yes, but uh, is, is, is there one that involves uh, liability because of lack of training? Not to my recollection. Uh, I suppose you would uh, you, you would uh, you would say that uh, the deliberate indifference standard uh, involving failure to train would apply in a situation like that. What, what about in the uh, what about in the Fourth Amendment case where they where they uh, and the claim is that the the uh, uh, Municipal, the municipality failed to train officers about what a uh, what the rules were about entering a house. Well, that that's an that, that raises an interesting point that goes in a way to the heart of the duality that's here. As to the officer, the case would be analyzed as a Fourth Amendment proposition under uh, Graham and and uh, and Brower, because any. Excessive force cases so analyzed. It's not analyzed as a uh, as a Fourteenth Amendment due process proposition. Uh, as to the municipality, since or to the entity that employs the officer, you would still, under Canton and City of Harris, excuse me, City of Canton and Harris, have to demonstrate that the municipality's pattern, uh, custom, or policy was deliberate indif- deliberately indifferent and caused. Uh, the officer to engage in the unreasonable act under the Fourth Amendment. The deliberate indifference you're talking about here basically comes from Monell's requirement that it be a a policy of the municipality rather than an act of the individual, doesn't it? That is correct, and that gets us to pass the Section 1983 initial pleading obligation, which, as this Court has repeatedly said, involves only two elements. That a, that a federal right has been invaded under color of state law. So far as the municipality under Manel, in order to get that person as a defendant, you have to also demonstrate deliberate indifference. The, ni- the uh, Fifth Circuit's error in this case was that it didn't recognize that so far as Section 1983 was concerned, we had pled all the elements, so you have to get down right away to a determination of whether there's been a federal right that's been invaded. And we submit that under the teachings of this court's decisions, where there's a claim of substantive due process invasion of one's life interest or bodily security interest, that deliberate indifference is the standard that defines the constitutional right. Well, then you're really borrowing from the Monell line of cases a concept that had nothing to do with the Constitution. 
and, and importing it into constitutional law, aren't you? I think not, Your Honor, because I can borrow that from the Estelle line of cases under the Eighth Amendment. But you're not claiming an Eighth Amendment violation. No, we are not. I mean, arguably, we could stand here and say that demonstrating that the municipality had caused this, 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 this violation through deliberate indifference is sufficient, and all we need to do then is demonstrate some level of recklessness or gross negligence, as was left free, at least for argument, in Daniels, uh, Davidson, and, uh, and Whitley. How, how does your case differ from DeShaney versus Winnebago County? The way that differs is we analyze DeShaney as essentially a state action uh, causation case. In DeShaney, uh, you, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, your analysis was that there essentially was an intervening private cause for which the state was not responsible, and there was no state action. In other words, the chain of causation had been broken. No such thing exists in this case. Well, uh, the Fifth Circuit uh, uh, seemed to say that there could be, uh, there, there could have been liability here if there had been an abuse of governmental power. And I know not where they get that as an element of a Section 1983 claim. Has that concept been given some content in the Fifth Circuit? Yes. If the content is what, a negative what is an content. Abuse? What, would have been, what would have been an abuse of governmental power in a case like this? What could, have, could it have been? As I read the Fifth Circuit law, which involves four case, five cases in which they've uh, used that phrase, I don't think it's possible to make that assertion within the context of an employment relationship for an injury that occurs on the job. Well, having employees is an exercise of governmental power, I suppose, isn't it? We believe so, Your Honor. And uh, I, did you argue to them that... Uh, it's an abuse of uh, governmental power if uh, you don't train your employees properly? We, we argued, by the time we got to the Fifth Circuit, as its opinion reflects, that the analysis presented by the Eighth Circuit in the Ruse decision is the correct analysis, which tracks just what Your Honor said, that it's not the employment and the injury in employment, but by putting somebody untrained in a position of high risk known to the municipality, and so far as these pleadings are concerned, we may infer not known to decedent. That is the violation of constitutional right. We stand on the Eighth Circuit analysis. Section 1983 aside, do you know of any case uh, involving uh, the due process clause and involving substantive due process, deprivation of uh, uh, life, liberty, or property, where the deprivation was not intentional, where the state... Uh, through negligence or gross negligence or whatever you like has caused somebody's death and it's been held to be a violation of the due process clause? I would, I would think, if you're speaking of the state as opposed to an individual flesh and blood state actor, I know of no such case. So far as... Well, you think the test for a constitutional violation under 1983 is different from the, from the, 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 the test under the due process clause simpliciter, as we say? No, Your Honor. I think it's the same, and that's why we have gone for the standard in this context of deliberate indifference, which under uh, no, Wilson chief, is, a, is, is, is an intense standard. Yeah, but as the Chief Justice pointed out, that's the standard for attributing, for attributing the violation to the municipality. But, but in all the cases I'm aware of anyway, 
the violation, at least when you're talking about a due process, a substantive due process violation, is an intentional violation on the part of somebody. Not that the person died or, or, or was deprived of something accidentally or even with gross negligence. At least somebody did it intentionally. Then if you want to attribute it to the city, you have to have gross indifference. But you need some intentional action, don't you, for a due process violation? Well, we, our position is that the city's failure to train is the intentional action. Just as in Lafleur, well, the, I, I don't mean I don't mean any intentional action. I mean the deprivation has to be intentional. You have to intentionally have deprived the person of life, liberty, or property, not not by mere accident. But intent has two components. There's the the standard that's articulated in Wilson, albeit in a in an Eighth Amendment context, in which Your Honor described it, and, and as I analyze it, as what is known as objective intent. And then there's the standard, I think, in uh, Whitley and Albers, which one would analyze as subjective intent. We suggest that you do not need to prove the objective intent to make out the due process violation. And we have adequately pled the objective intent standard. Well. We think that perhaps in Lefleur, for example, the, uh, the pregnancy leave case, surely someone performed an intentional act of saying, you must go on leave. But there was no intent to violate a right as such. But that's not a substantive due process case. Well, it was analyzed, as I recall, in arbitrary and capriciousness standard basis as opposed to equal protection basis. And we would submit, Your Honor, that at, at those levels, the equal protection analysis is really a subset of a, of a fundamental well, I suppose then that when, when the army is grossly negligent or something, or a general is, is, is grossly negligent in, in, in the conduct of a battle and, and some troops are killed uh, or deliberately indifferent, that's, that's a violation of the due process clause. No, I think not. It's contextual, Your Honor. And well, why wouldn't it be a violation of the due process clause? These people would have been deprived of their lives and there would have been, you know, deliberate indifference. First, well, that's not gross negligence. All right, let's say deliberate indifference. That, but that's, that's a violation an, of that's the That's an intent. That's an intent, as I, mm-hmm. as I read the cases, albeit in the Eighth Amendment context. That equates to intent. Now, the fallback... You have any due process case that says that? That uses deliberate indifference? Right. For purposes of no. deciding whether there's been a violation of the due process clause, not for purpose of attributing it to the city. It's been, it's been reserved, Your Honor. The, the closest is the, uh, the Whitley and Albers case in which you, the subjective intent standard was applied, and the issue was reserved as to people who were either pretrial detainees or, uh, or people whose liberty was not constrained. We submit that it's contextual in the sense of the government need, uh, the interest of the individual, and where the acts are taking place. Well, under, under your analysis, you really don't need the Federal Tort Claims Act to sue a veterans hospital or to sue anybody else that works, works for the government. You, you have a Bivens action, I presume, if you can show deliberate, the deliberate indifference on the part of the government employee, a surgeon or a postman that ran over you? I, I think not, Your Honor. Under the, as I understand the Federal Tort Claims Act, which is uh, not before us, uh, it basically precludes Bivens actions for, for actions that are taken uh, properly within the, within the scope of employment. So the issue never gets to the courts except on the basis of a proper certification uh, of whether the action was taken within the scope of employment. 
Clinton's claim against someone who, uh, under your theory, denied you, took your life away by deliberate indifference to your safety on the part of the government? As I, if you're talking about the federal government, I understand that the Federal Tort Claims Act and this Court's decisions take care of that. If you're talking about the state... Well, take, take, take the federal government. I understand that if there's a certification that the action occurred within the course of, uh, within the course of employment... Well, so, supposing there had never been a Federal Tort Claims Act passed, and the Are government you? just says we're, we have sovereign immunity from all of this. Well, and the government is out. But the individual actor under a Bivens action sued in his or her personal capacity presumably would have to stand and answer if a claim of deliberate indifference is made. Yes, Your Honor. Similarly, the that would case be a would constitutional be, violation. It would be, if proven. Now, and proving it, of course, is extremely difficult. So if, uh, if I can show that a postman deliberately runs over me uh, or is consciously indifferent to my welfare, uh, I can sue him under the United States Constitution. Runs over you while he's driving the postal yes, truck. Yes. That, that's a tough one, Your Honor. I know there are, those hypotheticals are used in the negligence cases, which is one of the reasons why you've identified that negligence can never be the standard for making out a due process violation involving injury to person, property, or life. And we do believe, Your Honor, that it's a question of identifying the appropriate standard that, that, that is the task of this court. Well, even if we were to acknowledge that, uh, you, you, can, you know our problem, obviously, uh, of our reluctance to have an undifferentiated, uh, broad-based uh, substantive due process right under 1983. Why shouldn't we just apply the Peratt line of cases? Well, if to such claims, uh, and to say that uh, they apply in a substantive violation area as well when the claim is undifferentiated, not uh, based on the first or, or fourth uh, or amendments or a specific constitutional violation, because it seems to me that that would strike very close to the root of the real harm um, if there's no uh, ability to recover. Uh, from the state, it seems to me that that, that is a, a, an aggravated uh, factor that might be taken into account in determining whether there's 1983 uh, liability at all. Well, Your Honor, it, of course, that would involve a uh, modification of what appears to be the rule in Zinnerman versus Birch. Yes, it would. And, but obviously the court is free to make that modification. I don't know, however, why there should be a differentiation between substantive due process rights against arbitrary or capricious government action and First Amendment rights or equal protection rights or other Because of the rights. obvious problem of your turning 1983 into a general uh, uh, tort statute. I think not. Which was probably not the intent of the Congress. I, I agree that wasn't the intent of Congress, but it was the intent of Congress to reenact the Constitution in in terms of its liberty components through the enactment of Section 1983. And it was the intent of Congress that Section 1983 should be a broad remedial statute. It is appropriate to differentiate with respect to the standards within one bundle of rights, substantive as opposed to procedural, as to what standard will be but applied. But if there's an adequate remedy, then that necessity is gone. 
Well, as I say, it would require a revision of the statement in, in Zinnerman versus Roth to say that, and, but we don't agree that this is an attempt to turn Section 1983 into a general tort statute. Um, you know, as but is it not true that your theory would, in this case you have an employee who's suing, correct. that your theory would equally apply to a civilian pedestrian walking down the street who fell into a manhole, threw up, say they left a cover off a manhole and somebody fell into the sewer, and they were deliberately indifferent in the way they tra- taught people to put manhole covers back onto the sidewalk? It, it, is, it is conceivable that such a You're not limiting your, your ca- category of potential plaintiffs is not limited to employees, right? No, it, it does not, and it doesn't necessarily limit it to death as opposed to physical or emotional Physical injury, injury would be an in, uh, impairment of liberty. And you're, and you're const- I want to be sure I understand you because you're not relying on a procedural due process claim. You're claiming this is a violation of substantive due process. As pled and presented below, that is essentially correct, except with respect at some levels, to the claim under the Texas Hazard Communication Act. But it, it has not been briefed uh, very well, There you're claiming that deal. statute gave you some kind of a liberty interest of which you could not be deprived without a prior hearing. Is that it? That would be one thing. If one had to fall back under that statute, we, we believe that the respondent has demonstrated the inadequacy of the remedy available with respect to these claims by demonstrating, for example, that under... Uh, the uh, Texas Tort Claims Act, uh, if a private employee were killed, an action could be brought for uh, gross negligence and exemplary damages, but because of the immunity and there's statute, some kind of a constitutional true. obligation to give uh, employees of the city precisely the same remedy that non-employees would well, have. Well, it, it certainly renders suspect the, uh, the adequacy of the remedy under the Texas Hazard Communication Act. But this case has been analyzed and presented principally as a substantive due process case, no question about it. And there is no decision of this court that has reached uh, the proportions of this case. There are several circuit court decisions. Well, there's no decision of this court that holds there is a substantive due process violation by committing a tort, whether it's negligence, uh, deliberate, or deliberate indifference, is there? Other than substantive due process in the sense of picking up one of the enumerated rights in the Bill of Rights, such as the Eighth Amendment or the Fourth Amendment. Yes, there is, and Which we would one? submit that that is uh, Whitley and Albers does suggest. Well, that's an Eighth Amendment th- case, wasn't it? I beg your pardon? Wasn't that an Eighth Amendment case? No, Your Honor. It, in the decision, I believe, the court also addressed the due, substantive due process claim and held it to the same standard as the Eighth Amendment standard. So that would be the only case that, that, that appears to be more or less directly in point, albeit in the context of... of well, at least you can't find a case that wasn't at least a, an alternative provision of the Bill of Rights, uh, at least an alternative ground that identified a provision of the Bill of Rights. The implications yeah. of both Daniels and Davidson... They were procedural due process cases, that is at least true. in part. That is true. They were, they, they were addressed as procedural due process claims. I frankly don't know why. Because uh, the majority didn't follow my separate opinion. <laughs> <laughs> I do recall that, but I meant there were concessions along the way by counsel that it was analyzed specifically as Mr. Rosen, um, yes, sir. Ne- ne- never mind deliberate indifference, even, even intentional action uh, on the part of the government, that is, intentional action by a government officer, uh, which is the only way the government can act, the Tort Claims Act um, carefully excludes intentional torts. And, and I guess under your theory of what substantive due process embraces, it doesn't matter. 
if the Tort Claims Act uh, excludes intentional torts, does it? Because you'd, you'd, you'd have a Bivens action, I suppose, for, for the intentional torts. You might, but not against the government. Because they're unconstitutional, but not against the government. And it would have to be against the officer in his individual capacity. And, and that'd, be a, that'd be a constitutional action against the officer. I would think so, and I For depriving you of, of your life, limb, life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And, and if the standard is... Substantive con- due process is wonderful. It really, it, 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 it's everything turns into a constitutional thing. I don't think so, Your Honor. It would be everything turns into a constitutional thing if you were talking about negligence or a failure of, uh, to, to apply a proper uh, duty of care or standard, ordinary standard of care. We're talking about intent. At the very least, we're talking about uh, deliberate indifference, which is objective intent. And why shouldn't the populace be protected from the government if it really goes about, on that level of willfulness, taking people's lives or injuring them egregiously or or, or taking their property. Uh, We believe that 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 was the purpose in the enactment of the Constitution and certainly in Section 1983. They, They knew about substantive due process when 1983 was enacted, huh? I believe they, they, they had they had this line of cases clearly in mind. Yes, there was some discussion of the coin case, if I recall, in the debates. There was some discussion of substantive due process, uh, natural law kinds of cases, in in some of those debates, to the best of my recollection. Not clearly in mind. I've admitted already, and I think the the record is clear, the historic record, that there wasn't a lot of debate on section. One of that Civil Rights Act, that the focus was on the criminal provisions and the conspiracy provision. But not on that. Had any substantive due process cases on the books uh, at the time 1983 was, was decided? I think not. I thought this was before the Lochner era when. Yeah, I think it may have been. Were there things in Barron and Baltimore, and, and, and uh, there were circuit decisions by Justice Washington and such that dealt with very much related concepts under the uh, Fourth. Article 4, uh, Equal Protection, or uh, Privileges and Immunities Clause. But I see that... Uh, if Is there any state sorry. litigation uh, pending or attempted? The only state litigation... There is no private claim that could be brought in state court. The uh, Attorney General of Texas did bring an enforcement action, a civil action under the Texas Hazard Communication Act, of which the court has agreed to take judicial notice just on the subject of of the act's applicability to these There were workman's comp benefits available. I beg your pardon, there right. were. You're as right. a matter of state law. As a matter of state law. But, but as not I, punitive damages. Not punitive damages, not general damages, and as a matter of state law, a private, an employee of a private entity would have those claims. It's under uh, workman's compensation in state law, uh, is there an exception for serious and willful misconduct or something like that? So if there's aggravated conduct, there can be a... a a, a suit uh, under the general tort laws? For gross negligence, but not against the municipality, which is immune. Where there's a debt. Thank you, Your Honors. May I reserve my... Yes, Mr. Rosen. Mr. Paul, we'll hear now from you. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court. What this case lacks is a constitutional violation. Petitioner attempts to create one by stringing epithets at the city's conduct in a workers' compensation case. Petitioner's argument is that if there's injury on one hand and a bad enough governmental entity on the other and causation between the two, there's a constitutional violation. 
This has never been the law. This ought not be the law. Because if it is, it is going to turn a tremendous amount of litigation into federal constitutional law. Let me offer a hypothetical, which I believe will help flesh out the facts of this case and the contours of what's uh, available. The police department of Harker Heights is deliberately indifferent to the maintenance of its cars, just doesn't care about them. Police go out, they arrest a suspect, driving the suspect back, the steering wheel jams, the police officer and the suspect are both killed. In our mind, the suspect has a 1983 action. The police officer does not have a 1983 action. The reason for the distinction between these two people is custody. When this court has dealt with Section 1983 claims in a substantive due process fashion, the key element is custody. Uh, Justice White, the, a person as Geraldine Harris in City of Canton v. Harris wasn't free to make her own choices under those facts. If she wanted to leave the police station, presumably uh, the officers would have prevented it. Uh, custody is a basic fact where an individual in our society loses the liberty of choice. And the due process yeah, clause is the about police liberty. sergeant is told by the lieutenant, you drive that car. You've, you have no choice in this matter. That is right. not true, Justice Stevens. Uh, uh, I am not saying that the consequences of uh, failure to drive the car are de minimis, but the sergeant has the opportunity under our society to say, I won't drive the car. Mm. You, you think the passenger uh, in custody would have a substantive due process claim? Uh, is that I'm, what you're saying? I would like to concede that arguendo for purposes of uh, this case only. It is clear to me that... Uh, the only custody cases we've had where there's a, there, there's a violation in recovery is our Eighth Amendment cases, I think. Well, uh, it seems to me that uh, your decision in City of Canton versus Harris at least uh, yes. suggested uh, that there would be that. And I don't, I don't mean to argue the uh, suspect's constitutional rights before this court. Mm. I wish to argue the city's constitutional uh, rights and it is my contention well, that let's, let's assume that the let's assume that the uh, this arrest is made and the trouble is that the officer driving the car just doesn't know how to drive and the reason he, one of the reasons he doesn't know how to drive is they didn't even inquire whether he knew how to drive and they sent him out and you could say they're deliberately indifferent would you say that is a uh, it would be a, a 1983 action there by the suspect? No, yes. Uh, I, I'd like to concede it for the purposes of this oh, argument. I don't want you to just concede it. What's, what's your opinion? Uh, my opinion is that the government does, in fact, owe some duties that are sufficient to get past a uh, 12B6 motion uh, under this, that facts would be necessary. All right, so you get that and you go to trial and you prove that, that uh, they just didn't seem to care whether the people who drove police cars knew how to drive or not. My instinct is that uh, when the police... Your takes, legal opinion is... My legal opinion is that when the police take someone off the street, that they owe a duty of uh, reasonable care to them. So that would also go just to any pedestrian that was run over by somebody who didn't know how to drive? No. Why no, not? I don't believe that that's Why true. Why not? Don't they owe, uh, owe I, some I, duty I, to... 
I, I think that's the third line. I was ready in my hypothetical to kill a pedestrian if necessary, uh, <laughs> although I would, I would like to minimize the number of deaths in one argument. Uh, but uh, well, you still have got to deal with that. The, the point that I have in my argument is that the police officer who is driving the car may only prevail in a 1983 action if this court holds that there is a duty of workplace safety that the city must provide. And this court's cases don't. Uh, there is no indication anywhere in this court's constitutional cases that a municipality has a duty of workplace safety. Mr. Poe, I suppose in one sense a government employee has to do what the employee is told to do by the supervisors or risk being fired. And in that sense, maybe as much in the control of the government as Ms. Harris was in the city of Canton in a different sense. uh, I simply don't believe in our society that that can be an accurate description. Uh, Ms. Harris has no choices whatsoever uh, once the police bring force to bear upon her. But my police officer, unless this court is going to repeal the 13th Amendment, may always quit his job. Mr. Poe, we don't say that for purposes of a violation of the First Amendment, for example. Uh, we, we, we don't say that uh, uh, you can do whatever you like to, uh, to government employees with regard to restricting their speech, because after all, if they don't like it, they can quit. That's quite true. So why should it be any different for substantive due process? That's quite true, because uh, this Court has found that the Constitution applies in the uh, workplace with the uh, First Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, the Equal Protection Clause, the specific... But not the Substantive Due Process Clause. That's quite correct. For some reason. Why? Uh, I I think... Because you'd lose this case otherwise. I I hoped I uh, got that out. I I meant to. Uh, There is a reason uh, why this Court has held. First, the very fact that a provision has been placed specifically in the Constitution is a demonstration by those involved that they believe the government was more likely to violate that provision and its violation. They really didn't believe in substantive due process. Well, the case that uh, you were asking Mr. Rosen for is Dred Scott versus Sanford. Mm -hmm. That's the only substantive due process case that I'm aware Well, they aware really of. believed in, in due process. They just didn't ever believe that there was anything substantive about it. That's quite it. correct, Justice White, of course. Uh, so Mr. Poe, what, what if here the city knew, clearly knew, that sending this employee into the sewer would result in his death, but concluded that it was going to send him anyway, intentionally sent him there to his death? I don't see uh, that it makes any difference whatsoever. No liability. No liability. It is wrong. Let me make it clear. It's wrong. The facts that you give might be enough for uh, an indictment, and I'm not a criminal law expert, but no, we're some talking form- about no. whether it's a substantive due oh, process no, violation. Oh, no. No, it does not. I think it, it's tortious. There is a state system that is fully functioning, that is able to uh, deal with tortious conduct. Uh, there is an assumption that seems to well, pervade. Well, do you do you defend the court below where it has a turn on whether there's an abuse of government power? That's how I read the court as finding within 1983 some element of having to prove abuse of government power. Do I you think defend that. Uh, no, not really. I think the Fifth Circuit uh, was caught in its standard uh, between this Court's decisions in Perrette versus Taylor and Daniels versus Williams, and it was doing the best it could. 
I think if it had thought further about what it was dealing with, it would have understood that discussions of abuse of power occur in the context of custody with the police. I, I, just, I want to make sure why, why, why you concede that there's liability for, in your hypothetical. Is it because there's a Fourth and an Eighth Amendment concern? Uh, in uh, the, this custody requirement yes. that you impose, where does that come from? Uh, I believe, uh, reading uh, Justice uh, White's opinion in City of Canton versus Harris. That's a court opinion. Oh, excuse me, Justice White. Uh, that, the, uh, that the decision to restrain liberty, uh, to prevent a person from... That, that's standard Fourth Amendment law. I, I, I will agree with that. Uh, I, I, would, I think of, I've been thinking... So your hypothetical doesn't seem to me to be advanced the analysis very much. Well, I, I think... And, and, I, and I'm frankly surprised you concede it, because if you say that if there is custody as a free-floating substantive due right. process right, uh, right to be uh, treated uh, properly within custody, it's just a slight extension to say that this employee was in the constructive custody. I mean, you know how that works. I, I know how it works, but I just don't believe that it's accurate. I don't believe that uh, we can discuss in uh, our country the idea that uh, work is a custodial environment. That seems to me to be contrary to all our notions. It is true that for some people the economic system uh, imposes more constraints than on others, but I think that that's uh, much like uh, the problem in DeShaney uh, versus Winnebago County, uh, that some children uh, have the misfortune of being born to bad fathers. Mr. Poe, why is custody important? I'm, I'm trying to grasp. I understand that you're drawing the line on custody, but is it because if there is custody, there is a specific provision of the Constitution violated as opposed to the substantive due process provision? No, Justice Scalia. I, Supposed provision? If I understood, the reason I'm drawing a line at custody is that if there is not custody, a state does not uh, violate due process of law uh, with respect to the people it deals that's, with. That's the conclusion. I, I think that that's uh, what flows uh, from this Court's cases. But isn't the reason that there is liability if there is custody essentially a Fourth Amendment or an Eighth Amendment analysis? Which you're saying you don't have here. No, it, it, uh, we don't have. Uh, isn't that what you mean? Yes. Okay. Uh, there, so you're, you're drawing a line for purposes of 1983 between substantive due process and the violation of other constitutional provisions. Substantive due process. Real constitutional provisions, the ones that, that, that really say that. Well, there, there are, uh, I think within that, there's, there's still some ambiguity because at various times this court has held that substantive due process uh, can give meaning to, a, to an idea uh, as if it were functionally equivalent to a specific guarantee of the Constitution. At one time, liberty of contract under Lochner was such a right. Uh, the right of privacy under Griswold uh, appears to be such a right. right the right of travel. Can I, I ask, challenge your custody distinction with an example? Supposing a woman has been raped and wants an abortion, and that everyone would agree in the hypothesis that she had a substantive due process right to an abortion. She's not in custody. Could the state arbitrarily uh, interfere with her access to the abortion clinic? The state can't uh, interfere with a guaranteed constitutional right under But it's guaranteed state. only in a substantive due process, uh, for example. Is, uh, yes, that is true, uh, Justice Stevens, but it, it is one of those 
very few examples where this Court has interpreted substantive due process as if there were specific words uh, beyond due process, right of privacy. There is no case that does it with workplace safety. This case, the Court has avoided finding a fundamental right to food, to clothing, to shelter, to education, to employment. Well, but how about travel, then? Supposing somebody wanted to get access to some place in the state interfered, you'd say that's also one that's been crystallized as, a, as though it were an enormous. As though it were. Uh, so substantive two, due process. Uh, so there are three uh, kinds of substantive due process, right? Those that are enumerated, those that are just as, might as well have been enumerated, and then this kind of ca- non-custodial category. Well, I, I think there's three. If functionally, uh, this Court has uh, developed these categories where there are the specific guarantees in the Constitution. There are some aspects of substantive due process which are the functional equivalent of specific guarantees in the Constitution. Uh, that seems to me to be a fair reading. And, and then there's some others that are in the penumbra. <laughs> yes. Uh, if I could state that workplace safety, to use PALCO, is simply doesn't seem to me to be implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. It's important, but it's not the same rank order. There's no reason to believe, I think, that government is more likely to infringe on the safety of its employees than private employers. There's no more reason to believe that a government infringement here would be more harmful to uh, the people involved than if it happened with private employers. Indeed, one facet of government in the workplace is that governmental policies may be changed. Governments are not as driven as private corporations by the bottom line. We can change governmental policies through democratic processes. And that uh, seems to me to be perfectly applicable to uh, these cases. Would it change your analysis, Mr. Poe, if Mr. Collins were a city prisoner required to clean the sewers? Yes. I believe that uh, I believe these the your city, workplace analysis. I believe the city owes a, a, a higher duty to those who are forced uh, by the force of law, uh, coerced into what they're doing than those uh, who do so voluntarily in employment. Where's the underlying constitutional right? I think the underlying constitutional right uh, is the facet of due process of law that ties into coercion. Well, I suppose a member of the State National Guard whose who's, uh, who's commanding officer tells him to go down the stairs. Where, do, where does he come? I mean, he's, he's an employee, but he goes to jail if, uh, for desertion, if, I, for insubordination. I grant that. Uh, yeah. it, uh, or I, I grant the, the problem that you're giving me with the hypothetical. Mm-hmm. I, I do not pretend that coercion is, the, is a perfect bright-line rule that one can see uh, both sides of it at all times. There will be some blurry situations involving custody coercion. I don't dispute that. Uh, for purposes of this case, if the workplace is custodial or coercive, then I think everything is. And I think that, that uh, it's important to realize that workplace safety is very, very far to one side of the line that I'm drawing. Petitioner's argument is that only a federal judicial forum can provide the needed remedy uh, for her and that this court should eschew bright-line rules in formulating what should happen. Uh, As petitioner words it, that all uh, she is asking for is an opportunity to go to federal court under certain very limited circumstances. 
The participation of the Amakai seemed to me, in this case, seemed to me to belie that. I think there is an understanding uh, of the various Amakai that have filed briefs in this case that something uh, big is at stake in the amount of litigation that can occur. Uh, if, I, if the city of Harker Heights had sent three individuals down that manhole that day, one, Mr. Collins, had died, another had been seriously injured, and the third, while getting out, had broken his wristwatch, this court would be faced with three 1983 cases today, one involving life, one involving liberty, bodily security, and one involving property. The point of this is that it's not sewers, it's schools, it's hospitals, it's everywhere that government is. Because petitioner's argument is that if the government is bad enough and there's injury, uh, then there's going to be a 1983 claim. Petitioner states that when I articulate this, that I'm making a floodgates argument. And I think that my argument uh, is both good constitutional law and it is a floodgates argument because I find nothing in petitioner's argument that would close the floodgates. I don't even find a finger in the dike under these circumstances. What petitioner, I think, overlooks consistently is the point of states and this creativity within our federal system. The states for the last 20 years have been amazingly active in tort reform. Under some circumstances, the states have uh, expanded liability. In a couple of areas, uh, they have contracted liability. Torts is an area that the state courts deal with, and the legislatures deal with it. Texas, in fact, has dealt with the problem that we are discussing today in two separate fashions. Uh, in one fashion, there is the Texas Workers' Compensation Act. Petitioner is receiving a workers' compensation award under the Texas statute. Uh, in the other hand, there is the Texas Hazard Communication Act. Uh, I, in petitioner's brief, as I understood the brief, and I did not hear this in the oral argument, Petitioner uh, was trying to state that the Texas Hazard Communication Act created some form of constitutional expectation that would then be protected by due process. It was as if Texas had created this right on one hand and then inadvertently failed to provide a good enough remedy for the constitutional right that Texas had created. I believe that petitioner's argument in her brief about the Texas Hazard Communication Act borders on unconstitutional. It seems to me that uh, the Texas legislature is free to pass with whatever statutes it pleases. It is perfectly free to remedy those statutes in any way uh, that it pleases. And uh, if Texas did not adequately uh, provide a good enough remedy under the Texas Hazard Communication Act, that the forum for discussion of that is either in Austin, Texas, or across the street uh, with the Congress. If a police officer goes out to, uh, to a scene of some uh, confusion or commotion and wants to get to, uh, through a crowd and the crowd tries to block, uh, block him and he just uses his his gun or his stick uh, unnecessarily. He doesn't intend to arrest anybody. He just wants to get in. And he hurts somebody unnecessarily. And uh, uh, would you think uh, you could plead a 1983 action there? Uh, 
I'm not sure. It isn't as, a Fourth Amendment issue. No, it's not. Uh, you're quite correct. Uh, it, does, I, it does seem to me that police and their ability to use force, and use force without fear, I think, of violence coming back at them, uh, at least in your crowd this example. This is a form of coercion? Uh, Justice White, when a police officer tells me to move along, I view that uh, as uh, a very good idea. Uh, I think that that is a statement that's backed up by the power of the state. So you would say if, the, if you could prove that, that, there was, that this officer wasn't really trained and there was deliberate indifference about his training, that it would be a 1983 case? I'm, I'm sure that... Uh, you, 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 is this an arguendo thing? Or I, yes, I, uh, that's arguendo. I was about to say, I, I'm sure Petitioner uh, would agree with that. In Daniels versus about what about this situation if it were intentional? That is not deliberate indifference, but the state, the state said, "Yeah, we we know there's gas down there, and and uh, um, you're you're going to get hurt, but uh, we want you to go down." Uh, I don't. It wouldn't make any difference. No, it doesn't make any difference to me. Uh, I think that whatever uh, whatever standard of fault uh, that can be required, uh, it can be pled. And my point is that without a custodial setting, there simply is not a constitutional violation that uh, under due process of law. No, what could be a more, you know, what could be a more clear violation of, of substantive due process than intentionally taking somebody's life? Intentionally taking somebody's life. I mean, you know, we're talking about, about relatively more ab obscure things, such as uh, the other rights, privacy rights that you were talking about. I'm talking about killing somebody. And you say that is not a violation of substantive due process? That is correct. Uh, oh. under, under some circumstances, uh, substantive due process uh, takes its uh, position from context. Uh, in the yes, I don't understand substantive due process at all. Uh, I think, uh, Justice Scalia, that uh, substantive due process is uh, the most difficult concept in constitutional law. And uh, I think you understand it uh, as well as you shouldn't, uh, you shouldn't just compound the error. <laughs> uh, yes, thank you. I think that's an excellent statement. In Daniels versus Williams, this court noted that the only thing governmental about the action was the fact that uh, the respondent was a deputy sheriff and a petitioner was an inmate in his custody. At least there was custody there. Uh, in the instant case, the only thing that separates this case from an ordinary tort is the fact that the respondent happens to be a governmental entity. Otherwise, this case presents a tort case. Well, he, the, your opponent disagrees with that. I'm not sure that it's right. But he says there's this, this higher standard of proof, the deliberate indifference and so forth, which is also his thumb in the dike. That's why he doesn't think you're opening the floodgate. So uh, there is that. The, the ordinary negligence wouldn't be enough, or it would be in most cases. I, this case would be found in, in a torts class, a, a tort as a personal injury problem. Uh, I don't believe that uh, deliberate indifference uh, covers a constitutional uh, case. I don't believe that uh, Joshua DeShaney could succeed on the facts of that case if the case were, went back and were repleted uh, as a deliberate indifference case. Uh, I don't think deliberate indifference uh, is a facet uh, of, of the Constitution under these circumstances. It came about uh, as a way, in this context, 
of ascribing liability to a city for a constitutional violation that existed. It did not create the constitutional violation itself. Yes, but the other side of the coin, and I, I, I didn't agree with it myself, but the court has said, in effect, that negligence isn't enough to establish a constitutional violation. It seems to me to imply that something more than negligence might. Uh, something more than negligence might in the types of settings where this court has been uh, deciding its 1983 cases. This case marks a tremendous change in the type of 1983 case that has been brought. I think that this case is the equivalent of uh, Paul versus Davis, when once you had Monroe versus Pape, I think a case like Paul versus Davis was an inevitable uh, outgrowth. And I think that once you have Monell, a case like Collins versus City of Harker Heights isn't the outgrowth. But I do think that the fundamental insight of Paul versus Davis was that neither 1983 nor the 14th Amendment turned this court into a uniform commission on state tort law. So uh, if, a, if the mayor of a city uh, has an enemy that opposes, has opposed him and he knows exactly where he lives and there's a snowstorm and he tells the, he tells the driver of the snowplow, why don't you just tear up that fellow's lawn uh, in the process of cleaning the street, and he does it. And I take it that this is no different than causing a, a death or anything. It's just no 1983. That's right. It's a tort for which there are state courts and state remedies available uh, to deal with. Uh, not every injury committed by government has to be a constitutional violation. No, but you wouldn't go so far as to say that if they sent the man in the, in the sewer or ran over the front lawn because the man was a member of another political party or because he was a member of the wrong race or something like that. No. You aren't going that No, no, certainly. I'm, I, I didn't mean to. At, at page 19... You're not. <laughs> why, why, why does that make a difference? Uh, I think that both the 13th Amendment uh, and the invidious discrimination requirement of the Equal Protection Clause uh, impose uh, limits on government in well, all You're context. treating them both the same. You just don't have any duty to either one of them. Uh, if, if the statement is that a person was uh, select, the state used its selective power on the basis of race or on the basis of political belief adversely to the individual, I think those... Uh, we're out of the substantive due process area. Yes, okay. I certainly am. At page 19 of Petitioner's reply brief, mm. she states that uh, federal judges will know a dismissible 1983 case when they see one. Well, all four federal judges below voted to dismiss this complaint, and that's because for all her artful pleading, all Petitioner alleges is a tort. Well, are, you defending, uh, are you defending the rationale below? Uh, as I stated, Justice White, I believe that the Fifth Circuit, if they had thought about the uh, case a little more uh, in... They would, uh, you, you would say that uh, 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 an abuse of governmental power wouldn't have made any difference. I, th I think abuse of governmental power is inherent in the concept of due process of law. And that that uh, the Fifth Circuit was tagging. Well, what, it. Uh, give me an example. <clears throat> there isn't any. Uh, there, could there be an abuse of governmental power, so-called, in a case like this that would make it make it 1993 act? No, under no circumstances. Yes. Give me another case where there would be an abuse of power that would make the difference. 
I think that uh, if the uh, police uh, got an order to uh, throw the prisoner, in my initial hypothetical, uh, an order came from uh, the city, throw the prisoner uh, into the river and kill him. Oh, well, that's a custody case. I mean, that's I, that that is the line that I believe you need to the constant about abuse of power to get there. I, I believe the con, I believe that uh, abuse of power is inherent in you know is part of the custody, and it describes when a custodial setting is going to raise to a constitutional violation and when it's not. Thank you, Mr. Poe. Mr. Rosen, you have two minutes remaining. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, Respondent has now thrown itself in conflict with every circuit court in in the United States with respect to the range of hypotheticals. For example, in McClary, that court in footnote 6 allowed for an intentional uh, uh, injury to the life or security interest. Uh, The Ninth Circuit had a case, if I recall, not too long ago in which the police systematically hassled a bar owner for no particular reason they didn't like him. That gave rise to a substantive violation of the Constitution. Similarly, the Cornelius case of the 11th Circuit in which the town clerk got got kidnapped, that gave rise to a substantive security violation. Mr. Justice Thomas, there is one... Big pardon. Uh, are those cases in conflict with the... Fifth Circuit? I believe so. Yeah. I believe so. Mr. Justice Thomas. Well, the Fifth Circuit put itself in conflict with almost with every other court of appeals. I believe so on this abuse of power concept. Um, Mr. Justice Thomas, there is a case that tracks your hypothetical. Fruit versus Norris cited in the ACLU amicus brief. A prisoner was ordered into a, su- into a sewer, refused to go. Of course he was in custody. He wasn't killed. He wasn't whipped. He was disciplined, just as an employee who might have refused to go in the su- into the sewer might have been disciplined. We really see no analytical difference based upon custody. The real key, Mr. Justice Stevens, is the standard. That is the finger in the dike. Thank you, Your Honors. Thank you, Mr. Rosen. The case is submitted.